Hello and welcome to another episode of New Narrative's Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am wearing a grey, yellow and green batik shirt, sitting around a black table with two other people in front of a map of Southeast Asia, and my pronouns are he, him. And today we're talking about the Universal Periodic Review of Human Rights at the United Nations. Uh, but before I do that, I want to say uh, that I, I actually met someone at the gym who recognised me and he told me, I love your videos. And I said, great, join New Narrative as a member. And he said, what's New Narrative? So what I'm going to do is, uh, at the beginning of each video is now, I'm going to say this is New Narrative's political agenda. And uh, if you enjoy this podcast, if you like what we do, please do join us as a member at newnarrative.com slash join. Uh, or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And if you'd like to learn more about New Narrative, go to newnarrative.com slash hello to learn all about us. So today we welcome to the show Jolene Tan and Emmy Carissa. Emmy, would you like to introduce yourself briefly? Sure, um, I'm Emmy and I'm an activist with We Who Witness, which is a Singapore organisation of people who experience emotional distress or extreme of altered states or altered states of mind. And I'm also um, secretary at the Centre for the Human Rights of Users and Survivors of Psychiatry, which is an international non-governmental organisation which promotes the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And specific to the UPR, you were one of the authors of uh, this year's report. Yes, I was. Um, I contributed to a joint report by a coalition of 11 NGOs. But there were also other reports sent in by other NGOs, including other coalitions. And Jolene, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, I'm Jolene. Um, I'm a writer. Uh, my involvement with the UPR is that um, for one of the previous cycles, I contributed information on behalf of No to Rape, which was the campaign to repeal marital immunity for rape in Singapore. Um, that was in 2011. And for the 2016 cycle, um, at the time I was heading communications at AWARE, which was one of um, the members of a coalition, uh, the Alliance of Like-Minded Organisations, or ALMOS, um, who jointly submitted information to the process on the human rights situation in Singapore from uh, the point of view of various NGOs. Um, so I was involved in uh, helping to work on that report and um, I also went to Geneva during the adoption of the report for Singapore and um, made a statement as an NGO representative there. I was also involved in the first report um, with Marwa, which was co coordinating the first report. And that's, I think it was a very important civil society coalition building exercise and solidarity building exercise. And that first report was 2006? 2011. 2011, 20, sorry. Okay, so how often do these cycles come around? It's 2011 and now it's 2020. Yeah, so it's roughly four or five years. Four or five years, yeah. right. So, good. so the next one will be 2021, sometime in mid-2021, in gen well, depending on COVID, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Julian, let's start with you. What is the Universal Periodic Review of Human Rights? Okay, so the UPR is one of several UN mechanisms that exist to, uh, for states to help one another to realise human rights in their uh, jurisdictions. So there are various ways in which the UN mechanisms can do this. 
as a fundamental starting point, all the member states of the United Nations are signed up to the Charter in which uh, respect for human rights is proclaimed. And there is another instrument known as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was passed by the UN General Assembly, which sets out broadly what that means. In addition to that, states might sign up to specific treaties to do with human rights. So, for example, Singapore's signatory to uh, it's a party to the treaties on uh, elimination of discrimination against women, the rights of people with disabilities, uh, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, um, and most recently, uh, Convention Against Racial Discrimination. So if you sign up to a treaty, then there are special mechanisms under that treaty for assessing human rights in those areas. But in addition to that, every member state goes through this process known as the Universal Periodic Review. And as its name implies, it is for all member states, it's universal. It happens regularly in cycles, periodic, and it involves member states assessing one another on their uh, human rights uh, achievements and commitments. So what happens is that um, beginning from the first cycle, which um, Singapore went through in 2011, uh, there is a process whereby member states give one another recommendations. These are so the, there's, there's one state which is the state under review, and uh, other member states give it recommendations, which it then decides to either support or note, um, and these become the its commitments for that cycle, um, which should then be revisited at the next cycle, which typically happens four or five years later. Okay, so just to clarify, the other countries, are those the ones on the Human Rights Council? No, it's every single member state has the every single opportunity oh, to wow. participate. Okay. The Human Rights Council is the um, body within the UN that is administering this process. So it is correct, it's a Human Rights Council mechanism. Um, but they organize for a session in which other member states get to speak. And because it's so many, there is in fact very limited time for each member state to make its representations. Like we're talking about something in the region of two minutes. Um, okay. So if you as the representative from one of the other member states stands up and spend a lot of time praising and thanking the state under review for their um, achievements and contributions, you don't actually have much time to make the substantive recommendations. Right. So it can be pretty kind of short and sharp if you want it to be effective. They just stand up and say, thank you, um, and we recommend blah, blah, blah. And they go kind of straight into the meat of it so that all the member states can have a chance to make their um, recommendations heard. Okay, and, and when you say support and note, so support uh, is, is a sort of commitment that we will change, we will accept this recommendation and change this in the next five years. Yes. Whereas note is like, okay, we see that you say that, but we're not going to do anything about it. So they're not, uh, there isn't an option to just reject the recommendation outright. Yeah. The noted recommendations go into the, um, the, the report which is adopted on the state under review, um, and I guess, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's on the record then that they, they can't claim that, oh, we never heard of this concern before. We've never, no mm. one has ever made this criticism to us. It's, it's there in black and white. Mm. Yeah. But so I guess it's like your passive aggressive response yeah. to your colleague, like noted, <laughs> full <Yeah>. stop. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and then if you, uh, so if you note something, obviously no one's going to actually expect you to follow up. But if you support something and follow up, is there then any 
Um, I mean, knowing the UN, there isn't any sort of punishment or sanction, but is there any like expression of disappointment five years later? You know, oh, Singapore, you said you'd eliminate, you know, uh, gender discrimination or racial discrimination and you haven't. Um, I mean, I think that um, as with many of these mechanisms, like you said, it's not, it's not like a, there's no penalty um, other than the, the, the social penalty of intergovernmental shame um, or even uh, shame from your own um, citizens or, or people in your territory who can point to the report and say, you, you said you would support this recommendation, but where have you actually done it? So I think it's important to remember that as with um, a lot of the human rights mechanisms, it's a question of applying moral pressure and applying kind of the, the disinfecting power of sunlight to um, get states to place uh, their positions on things transparently um, so that they can be held accountable by various means. It's by no means a sort of, you know, punitively enforced sort of obligation. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can see there's a lot of countries which wouldn't like human rights to be, uh, you know, uh, enforced upon them, Singapore included. Uh, so... Five years ago, you were in Geneva, and did every single country get up then and say and give recommendations, or do some countries simply say pass? And um, there are actually several parts to the process. The reason why we're here, I guess, is because we were involved as NGOs in submitting information. So there is a uh, stage at which various parties submit information to the various member states who are going to be taking part. That can include. NGOs and NGO coalitions, like the ones that we've been working with. It can include, in countries that have them, national human rights institutions, which Singapore really should get one, but we don't have one. Um, and uh, it can also include the member state under review itself. Uh, the other UN bodies who have been uh, reviewing the member state under the various treaty mechanisms can also submit information. So there's this pool of available information for... Um, the reviewing states to take into account when they formulate their recommendations. So they look at this information and um, there is, during the session, there's, I wasn't there at that stage of it, but some uh, representatives in, the, in Geneva itself may also meet with various people to collect information and hear um, opinions on the ground. Then they go to the session where they... they um, kind of have their, their two minutes or, or however long it is. Um, so I wasn't there for that session, although I did watch it on uh, the UN streaming, and you can all watch it at home. It's very uh, instructive to watch it. Um, and I don't think they just say, like, we pass our time, but they can stand up and spend a lot of time praising and, you know, appreciating the involvement of the state there. And then they can just give some very bland, limited recommendation if they mm. wish. Um, I mean, I do remember one state mentioning something about the rights of people in Singapore to in rural areas, which did make me think they probably hadn't thought very extensively about right. what the situation in Singapore was. So it could just be that, you know, th perhaps it's something that they are very concerned about and they just bring up what informs their own concerns from their own perspectives. So it's really up to them how much they want to make of it. Some are more informed and more engaged than others. Um, so then you have that session where they all make their representations and the state also has a chance to provide information and kind of provide clarifications. And then, so that happened in the last cycle in 
January 2016. And then it was later in June 2016 that there was a session where the final report was adopted. That's after the state has gone through and marked recommendations if supported or noted. And so then you have the adoption session. So by then, the contents are more or less uh, fixed. Um, so I was there then for that session where NGOs again have a chance to make some oral representations, I think just to uh, reflect upon and um, add more context to the process rather than to influence the contents of the final document. Now, do you, do you remember how the Singapore government responded to all these things? I, I can imagine from my own experience. And well, actually, I, I, I do recall attending a watch party uh, for the for this uh, at the was uh, Agora, I think it was five years ago, but mm-hmm. I don't really remember what happened. But the Singapore government never seems happy about um, people criticizing it. So I can't imagine that they were very happy about this whole process. Right. So, I mean, you can see the um, final report adopted for yourself and there's a long list of supported recommendations and a also a fairly long list of noted um, recommendations. Um, they certainly uh, express great support for the process and uh, express uh, that they welcome the process. Um, but obviously, they respond to the substantive recommendations with differing levels of enthusiasm. I think that in the previous cycles, there was a particular controversy generated by some of the remarks by the Singapore delegation concerning 377A and discrimination against LGBT persons in Singapore. I think there was these very infamous remarks about how the existence of Pink Dot or the existence of uh, theatre shows with LGBT themes is proof that uh, things are all dory here for LGBT uh, that, that, that people. That doesn't make sense. Pink Dot is a protest for LGBTQ rights. If if there were, if everything was great for you know LGBTQIA plus communities, why would we need to have a protest every year? Yeah, I mean your your guess is as good as mine. Um, <laughs> there did seem. I mean, I think these remarks were particularly criticised for their seeming ignorance about the the real state of affairs. Like it's not. You know, the challenges that LGBT people face are of a everyday nature, being able to access housing, being able to access support in the cases of violence, uh, being able to go about their lives in education or in employment without discrimination. It's not like it's like a social club. We've got a one gay theatre show, so, so everything's great. I mean, it, I think it just reflects a kind of lack of substantive understanding of the issue. But yeah, so I mean, that was an example of their responses. Um, so LGBT discrimination was one key theme in the um, recommendations in the last cycle that were largely noted rather than supported. Another major area in which there were lots of recommendations had to do with the death penalty. A lot of states called for a moratorium on the death penalty in Singapore, um, pending ideally abolition at some later stage. Um, so those remarks were likewise generally noted rather than supported. Um, I think there was also some concern raised by NGOs involved about the data involved in death penalty, like the lack of transparency with which it's applied. So those are areas which came under discussion, as well as the situation with um, detention without trial. So that was also the subject of quite a few state recommendations to Singapore. What were the ones that the government supported? Do you remember? Um, 
I mean, okay, so I can tell you ones that I know they've actually not only supported but acted on. So they were Great. asked to ratify lots of extra conventions which they haven't ratified. In fact, okay, I say extra. There's a certain bundle of conventions which is regarded as the core treaties of which Singapore has not yet ratified all of them. But they did agree to and have gone on to ratify the Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination since the last cycle. So that was some action. They unfortunately did not uh, either agree to or go on to become party to many of the other core treaties, such as the Convention Against Torture, curiously, um, or the uh, Convention on Civil and Political Rights, for example, or um, something which is particularly pertinent, the Convention on the Rights of Migrants, given that we have ah. so many migrants in Singapore who are in such a disadvantaged position. That was uh, very significant and, and notable um, in its absence. So, yes. Another area in which there was movement pertained to at long last uh, marital immunity for rape. So that was finally got rid of. But um, sometimes the recommendations can be quite broadly worded to do with achieving greater inclusion for a certain community or achieving greater fairness for a certain community. So then it's not unambiguous, not unambiguous as to whether those recommendations have seen progress or not, because mm. obviously it's, it's so broad. Yeah. 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 So for the UPR, it's more of a peer pressure. It's designed to be more of a peer pressure setting rather than with the treaty bodies, which is more semi-judicial. I think that's what Jolene meant about it being about um, moral pressure. So the universal periodic review might seem like a very scary process, but it's actually possible to um, get training for it. Like, for example, when Singapore was up for the first UPR review, we had someone from the United Nations come to train civil society on how to write the UPR report. And um, so we can help each other out in civil society, even if one group doesn't really mm. know how to um, do UPR reporting. Um, and also, this is another point, but um, just now Jolene was talking about how states can praise, mm. only praise a country, and that applied in the first review, where um, amongst the first few countries to speak mm -hmm. about Singapore were North Korea <laughs> and Myanmar, which was then under military dictatorship, mm. and they just praised Singapore's human rights record. So mm. it's really designed to be less threatening than the treaty bodies, mm. in a way, because as was said, um, not all countries want to you know, have their human rights reviewed, mm. and that this was a way to make it so that everyone would participate, even mm. if they didn't sign a treaty. And mm. that's also good for civil society because then it's a chance to speak up um, and make the international community aware of mm. human rights violations that are happening, mm. even if your country hasn't signed a lot of international treaties. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The UPR is also less threatening in that it's not binding. So when you get recommendations from countries, it's not like you you are obliged to do this. You can, you know, and you have the chance to, um, the state has the chance to accept. noted. Or noted. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas when you do, when you, you report to a treaty body, you are basically recommended and it's, you know, and you're supposed to, like even in Singapore, where um, the convention doesn't automatically um, become on par with national law, you're supposed to change your, your laws to match 
the standards of the convention. Right, there's a there's a obligation on at the level of international law. Yes. Yeah. So when you go to Geneva also as a uh, NGO representative, there are also organizations that will help you to teach you how to lobby in Geneva. So for example, there's this organization called UPR Info, which will teach you like which countries are interested in which issues. Mm. And they'll tell you, okay, um, just prepare a one-page info sheet and then um, highlight the points you especially want the country to speak about and then you put it on their table. Mm. So they will teach you all these things. So it's not that... Although human rights seems very scary and and it also seems like something that the average person cannot do and you need mm. to have a law degree to do it, mm. you actually don't have to. Yeah, they help to make it accessible. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think that's, that last point is really important that um, for most people in the street, Singaporeans or otherwise, you tend to think that changing government policy, lobbying governments... Uh, acting on an international stage, yeah. uh, you know, or or even just a local domestic, but sort of formal high political stage is very complicated and tricky. But really, it's just uh, it's a method that you yep. can learn, right? And that I think one of the themes of the new narrative is uh, you know that we've tried to to put across is that it is possible for mm-hmm. ordinary people to uh, make their voices heard and um, help change things in our local community for the better. Hmm. Yeah, when I um my first um my first foray into civil society was actually with the UPR. So at the time I was nineteen years old and um I wasn't studying law. I am not a lawyer. I've not studied law but I just um you know was part of the NGO and I just learned by seeing how people mm-hmm. vote and you just sort of replicate it and you just it's not that difficult. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you need to be a lawyer. A lawyer makes you understand the law, but um, it also kind of puts you in a certain frame of thinking uh, with regards to the law. Absolutely. Um, um, yeah, so I yeah. mean, I guess in the same way that, um, like, you know, people think, oh, international human rights mechanisms, very inaccessible, very confusing, nothing to do with me. I think that human rights in general get a very bad rep for this as well, right? People think, especially in Singapore, where it's been set up, in opposition to some concept of national sovereignty or set up in opposition to our way of practically achieving things, um, people have a lot of myths and misconceptions about human rights. Um, So I think, you know, why do this? Why have uh, member states do this with one another? Why does Singapore bother? Why do we bother? Um, And I think that when you get right down to it, right, human rights are just a way of saying that There are some things that should never be done to human beings. Um, There are limits on what should be done to human beings in the pursuance of state or other goals. And there are some kinds of support that everyone should get just because they're a human being. It's just a sophisticated framework for expressing and institutionalizing this basic idea. Um, And I mean, it's no accident that this whole Universal Declaration of Human Rights emerged after the horrors of... World War II and the uh, kind of bureaucratically organized and institutionalized um, kind of violation of human rights through the Holocaust, for instance, um, when people said, okay, we need to express some standards um, to say that human beings are not just things, human beings are not um, obstacles or tools for 
to get like you know that states can either use or move out of the way to achieve their ends. Um, but that in everything that we do, um, we need to consider the well-being of the people involved. It's just a framework for ensuring that. And when you put it that way, it's hard to understand why why we should consider them to be inapplicable in any society. Surely, whatever our goals as a society, we want it to be carried out in a way that respects all the people who are inf- affected by it. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's um, to, to even further summarize what you say, I think it's just a way of codifying uh, the fact that we should be kind to one another. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. That's, that's all there is to it. And, and there's nothing, if you look at um, human rights thinking and experience over the last few decades, there's really nothing absolutist about it the way that the caricatures would have you believe. Like, like take freedom of expression. Um, to have a body of thinking that says that we sh- yes, you can limit it. And there's no human rights practitioner who says freedom of expression should be absolute and untrammeled mm. and there can never be restrictions, right? I mean, if nothing else, for example, no, someone can't just stand outside your door and play music at like 300 decibels there. I mean, that, that stopping that may be in principle a, a restriction of freedom of expression, but we recognize there are competing concerns. Or the classic example of shouting fire in a crowded theater. Right. right yeah. yeah. So, what human rights thinking has centered on is things like what are the good reasons for having restrictions? what are the best ways to achieve those purposes or those reasons while minimizing the degree of restrictions um, and sort of thinking about the various ways of achieving that. So it's to me, it is self-defeating for us not to want to learn from the ways that other people have thought about these questions and thought about how they apply to the experiences. Yes, our circumstances may not be the same as someone else's and so how we apply those lessons may change, but to throw the human rights baby out with the local inapplicability bathwater is to me like just clearly um, shortchanging ourselves. It's also um, a problem with the idea that societies and cultures are bounded and homogeneous mm. and discrete um, so and also unchanging. So I mean this idea that there is I mean, PJ, you're a historian as well, so you know about this. So, mm. I mean, it's not that there is something that's Singaporean and then there are these things that are not. Mm. I mean, if activists are trying to, from Singapore, are trying to promote this, then it's not, you know, that's also, I mean, that's something that we pick up. And just because something that may, maybe it originated um, from a certain context, it doesn't mean that uh, people can't then take it on if they find mm. that it's, helpful i mean don't don't you don't even get me started on the you know the kind of construction of national identity which actually i've talked about uh in recent podcasts and speeches about um how governments authoritarian governments manipulate national identity to benefit themselves and to Mm. use that as a cudgel to say that uh, to make themselves synonymous with the nation and with national identity so that their enemies then become somehow Mm. anti-national and treasonous and traitors Mm -hmm. right and of course the rejection of human rights which is um, very much predicated on the universality of human dignity respect for the individual the the you know it's the only objective uh division of human society is the individual Right. Anything bigger than that has to be imagined or constructed, mm. uh, you know, and its uh, borders and boundaries are, are far more fluid. So the, the way that we approach uh, 
governing and organizing our societies has to be at the level of the individual because you you can't um, draw boundaries around groups of people and simply declare them to be a certain way and then govern them on that basis because there's no basis for that objective reality. Mm. Um, yeah. Or at least it would have to be constantly negotiated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and, I mean, and, a, and negotiated in a way that the individuals still remain as units or yeah. as discrete uh, quantities within that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, respecting the right to... Yeah. I mean, you know, individuals do have the rights to then say, yeah. okay, I want to be part of this broader unit and mm. we all opt into it. You know, that's fine, yeah. Mm. Um, I think yeah. also um, one of the things about human rights is that people... Technically, people who have a lot of privilege actually do enjoy human rights. I mean, it's not rights as privileges, mm. but it's just, you know, if you're in a privileged position, you might not realise that you are enjoying all these things that everyone should be enjoying mm. universally. And I think it's also, I mean, this is also demonstrated that if you're marginalised, then it's really helpful to have human rights instruments um, because um, the way that, especially in, more recently, human rights instruments have been human rights instru- instruments being treaties like the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. They, I think, they're also thinking of creating a treaty on Indigenous peoples' rights mm. and also a treaty on older people's rights. So, especially now, especially nowadays, um, and you'll notice that a lot of the treaties, besides the core human rights treaties, which is the civil and political rights, um, economic and social rights, and Convention Against Torture, they focus on marginalized groups of people. And um, what's, as, um, just now I mentioned that um, societies are not homogeneous. And um, so there's actually, you know, oppression and inequality within a society. And what's helpful about human rights is that marginalized groups come together and then, or recognize that marginalized groups actually have rights too, and they lay them out. Um, and in recent times, the creation of the treaties has actually been led by the margin by marginalized people themselves. So mm-hmm. there's this uh, movement, and there's this reclaiming of power that goes on, and that activists in individual countries can then leverage on against uh, maybe more dominant discourses and more dominant ideas and structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think uh, to add to that, you know, it's it's just it's as a as a country, Singapore loves to trumpet when we are highly ranked in in these um, international rankings but we come to something but we're not uh, well ranked or well regarded and we somehow immediately reject it when actually there is so much we can learn mm-hmm. from others mm-hmm. um, and especially from our peers people who are the most like us or who are nearest to us uh, how they do things there's just so much we can learn Mm-hmm. and become a better society. Mm-hmm. And it, this is really, uh, you know, it's one thing if a government wants to reject or ignore, but then to actively seek to suppress human rights. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it takes more effort to suppress something than to ignore something. You know, it's another point I've made on the show. Um, why do they actively reject help, reject us getting better, uh, reject us having a better society, reject us trying to help ourselves, right? Mm. Trying to organize and make our societies better. I, I don't get why so much effort is, is spent suppressing ourselves. And then, of course, at the end of the day, the government will complain, oh, there's no 
initiative and agency among Singaporeans, Singaporeans that, you know, lazy, just sit around, wait for the government to, mm-hmm. to do stuff for them. I mean, well, yeah, when we try and do stuff for ourselves, you know, both at the domestic level, even international level, we go to, you know, the UN, or we, we have, we uh, build international solidarity. Well, you actively try and stop us. So it's all very frustrating for me um, and, and very disappointing. Mm. Um, but let's come back to the UPR. Uh, and um, so just one last question about the sort of last five years. Has, uh, can you elaborate, Joni? I think you, you mentioned this earlier. Um, what are some ways in which it's made a difference in Singapore and ways in which it hasn't? Yeah, I think as with all advocacy of this nature, it's very hard to pin down and say um, this is the reason for this change or this is the reason for that not changing or indeed this is the reason why things haven't got worse in some other counterfactual way that we we could have happened, right? Um, I would say that it's very clear to me that although we often, Singapore often rhetorically talks about how, you know, oh, we don't just uncritically take your standards, human rights, you know, we, we must adapt them for our own society. It's clear that there is concern in our, amongst our leadership about the way that the country is seen. That's just natural, right? And if you look at the amount of effort that they put into the procedural aspects of taking part in these human rights mechanisms, it's clear that it matters to them. And, it, it you know, there are also very obvious reasons why it would, because um, Singapore positions itself as a global hub, as an international centre for business, as a shining modern metropolis. It you attempts. Know, if I can interrupt there, that's another thing, right? Because signing up to global treaties with regards to the free movement of capital and mm. investment in Singapore and learning from the best practices mm-hmm. of businesses elsewhere about how to make money mm-hmm. but also exploit people to make money, that's all fine, yeah, yeah. right? Somehow that, the universality of capital yeah. is respected but the universality of human when, rights is yeah, not. What, yeah. Why? Yeah, right? like human dignity and human liberty. Why should we not have best practice yeah. and the most avant-garde technologies, quote-unquote, where those are concerned as well? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, import foreign talent to do that, right? Why is it we can import foreign talent when it comes to capital, but not foreign talent when it comes to making our societies better, right? Or import foreign capital, foreign ideas to, you know, make money mm-hmm. is all fine, mm-hmm. right? But to make societies better, more just, right? Have more respect, more dignity, help solve problems. No, mm-hmm. that's foreign interview. <laughs> and the, the idea of the nation state itself didn't, you know, it was, it came out of Europe, so... I mean, again, this is a point that I made in the show, right? Yeah. Like all our institutions that govern us from democracy, parliamentary democracy, the British uh, common law system, you know. The language we're speaking now. (laughs) So, anyway. Yeah, so the point I was trying to make is that um, in addition also to, you know, what you've said about, you know, international business, also a lot of Singapore's, um, some of Singapore's business also involves exporting itself as a model for other countries to follow as a kind of development path as well, right? So I think the leadership, the political leadership at the moment does care enormously about its international reputation, right? They would probably chew off their own arms rather than uh, admit it, but I think they, they do feel it when there is this international criticism. So while I can't say because X 
recommendation was in the UPR, therefore we have seen this and this change. It's, you know, these causalities are always hard to pin down. I think that it is uh, very safe to say that um, the more attention and focus there is on a particular problem, the more and the more that that attention comes from a human rights perspective, the more that there is a kind of reputational and moral constraint upon the uh, state and the government in acting in a way that contravenes that. If you wanted a super concrete example, I could say that, for instance, um, you know, the penal code was changed recently. Prior to the penal code being changed, there was a 500-page report by a group of experts, the Penal Code Review Committee. Um, and uh, when they were, for instance, discussing marital immunity for rape, it was very clear from the document that the experts had had some discussion about whether the repeal should be total or partial. And if you look at the terms in which they discussed uh, this question, um, it is relevant that they included in this document citations of the UPR, citations of the recommendations made under CEDAW, the Women's Rights Treaty, as well as the efforts of various activist groups who had been working on this issue. And um, given that it's clear that there was potentially disagreement or dissension within the the committee as to what the terms of the reform should be, I think it's fair to say that looking at that, one, one would conclude that all of this international pressure as well as domestic pressure must have helped to push it in one direction rather than another. So to me, that's, you know, if you wanted to, to kind of pin down something which has changed, you can see that mechanism of um, sensitivity to criticism uh, appearing within that. Um, but yes, I mean, obviously, in most cases, it's, it's very hard to say, you know, who knows how much worse things might be if um, there wasn't a UPR or some other process essentially telling the state, we've got our eye on you, we're noticing when these things happen, and they do not happen without being witnessed or without being kind of critiqued where that's, where that's appropriate. So going on what Jolene was saying about how Singapore has a reputation to keep up, it wants to keep up its reputation um, in each UPR session so far, in 2011 and 2016, the Singapore gov government has conceded one big um, thing each time. In the first session, it conceded that it will sign the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And in the second session, it conceded that it will sign and ratify the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Mm. So I think moral pressure played a part, especially in the signing of the CRPD, uh, mm. the Disability Convention, because it is one of the two most signed and ratified conventions in the world, along with the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Mm. So it was very embarrassing that Singapore had not signed it. Mm. And I think that's also one reason why it was... Um, Singapore conceded that major point in the UPR session. Mm. Um, and and that CRPD ratification has gone on to play a role in like the court's deliberations as well, hasn't it? Yeah, so um, the CRPD, um, in order to guarantee the rights of all persons with disabilities, it actually has a, um, a clause which prohibits torture for all people. And it was deliberately written into the CRP this way. And this clause was used by M. Ravi in his argument against corporal punishment in Yong Vu Kong's case. And the Court of Appeal actually looked into this and it went into the negotiation archives of the CRPD. 
And then it said that, yes, actually it was meant to prohibit torture against everyone. So the signing and of conventions actually does play a part, and as Jolene said, it, it you know it filters down into policy making and mm. and in legal decisions or legal reasoning. Cool. Okay. Yeah. That that sounds great. I mean, they so they concede a point in twenty eleven about CRPD, which then uh, and then which leads to them signing the treaty, which then leads to it being actually considered in a legal case in Singapore. So there is a very direct, mm. you know, chain of causality here. Not 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 to be cynical, but uh, is there is there a sort of um, I think Jolene, you you know, we were talking earlier, and you talked about is this a way of gaming the system by just conceding one thing every every? I mean, who knows, right? Um, you could think of it as uh, potentially uh, if 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 someone were to adopt that as a strategy, I guess they could do that and try and get some kudos for that. But from the point of view of people trying to hold the state accountable, I'm not sure that it totally matters what their thinking is as long mm. as the tangible gain of institutional reform is achieved. So I think it's definitely worth us pushing for. Of course, I wish there would be more than one, um, but I won't turn down one if it's coming. <laughs> definitely, as a disabled person, I'm very thrilled with the signing and ratification of mm. the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think this idea that you should only sign conventions which you think you are already in a position to fulfill, I mean, this is very interesting to me. Um, it presupposes that there is such a thing as a state anywhere which has actually achieved any of the, you know, realisation of human rights in their totality. Like, if that was the precondition, then there would never be any conventions or treaties the whole point of it is that it's a commitment, it's an obligation, it's a goal to work towards. Um, by no means just like an empty kind of aspiration statement, but something that you're actually committing to go towards. So I think that um, it's not particularly logical to me to say that you only join when you can already fulfill it. Um, and in it's also by no means the case that we have actually fulfilled all the treaty obligations for the treaties that we have signed. So it's not a, it's not even empirically true that that's what we do. So I think the prior question for something like the Convention Against Torture has to be for us to ask ourselves, do we actually share this uh, ethical stance that as a society we wish to commit to completely eradicating torture and if we do, even if we haven't got there yet, we should we should join. And there's also the issue of um, civil and political rights, which are immediately applicable and, and any violation of them should be stopped immediately, according to international law, whereas like social and cultural rights can be progressively realised. So I'm not really sure why Singapore cannot sign civil and political rights um, instruments, apart from the unwillingness of the state. Right, like it's, it's an ideological position. It's not a question of capacity. Yeah. Uh, so just for audience, can we distinguish between, what's the difference between civil political rights and social cultural rights? I haven't really studied these instruments, <laughs> so I don't feel confident being very clear. But I mean, broadly speaking, I think most people think of civil and political rights as being about uh, political participation, speech, assembly, um, the rights that facilitate people's uh, being able to have a say in the way that their societies are governed and the way that things take place. Whereas 
um, social economic rights tend to relate to, for instance, uh, human needs for perhaps housing or for education, for sustenance. I mean, the division is obviously artificial mm. in that um, how you can participate in deliberation affects how resources are distributed and how resources are distributed affects how you can affect the institutions around you. So it's not it's not a watertight sort of distinction, but broadly speaking, that those are the two concepts. Uh, if I if I remember correctly, it kind of originated out of um, you know when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was being written, uh, a desire for Western countries to push more uh, for uh, democratic values, civil political rights, and then um, the countries on the other side of the Cold War. Russia and China, for example, to talk more about uh, social cultural rights and the you know having a roof over your head, having uh, you know I- enough food to eat, mm. and uh, arguing that those were more important, um, and so that's why there's this sort of compromise by splitting the two in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, but right, you know, there are separate yeah. conventions as well that right, you know, right, that okay, concern them. Yeah, I think Jolie makes a really good point about how they are related to each other and how um, being disadvantaged socially or economically can affect your access to um, civil and political participation. And with disabled people, often people think it's only a social and economic rights issue, but actually there are also civil and political rights issues that Mm. confront disabled people. Yeah. Okay, let's come to this year's... um uh, report then, and um, with the the joint civil society report, which you helped co-author. Um, I guess the question is: Are there any major changes from the last one five years ago, or are we stuck in, uh, you know, uh, in a sort of stasis where we make these recommendations and nothing happens, apart from the one big concession, of course, which was the racial discrimination. Um, but that's not just because they signed it doesn't mean necessary we've eliminated racial discrimination of course but yeah what are, what are some of the highlights of this year's report for you I think um, the most important thing in general about civil society shadow reporting is the solidarity that's involved in it so um, it's a way because one way of controlling civil society and and dissident voices is to make people afraid of associating with each other and of not wanting to tackle like civil and political rights issues. For example, let's say if um, someone is working on women's rights, they might just say, no, we don't deal with human rights. We only work on women's rights. So I think um, when people, you know, civil society has come together to create, write these UPR reports, it builds solidarity and coalitions and um, strengthens civil society. Um, So the process is important as well. And um, I think one of the highlights is in that that sense, civil society activists who have a harder time pushing for their issues um, get back up for issues Mm. they are arguing for Mm. um, from... um, issues that are harder to advocate for like that that people might be afraid to address but then Mm. you have you see all these other civil society groups also signing on to this document Mm. um and i think that that's one very important point that um that 
will benefit all of civil society mm. because all of us need this um, freedom of information in order to do f- effective advocacy. And um, in civil society, often it's extremely difficult. We have to do our we have to do our own research and just spend a lot of time doing things that we wouldn't have to do if we could just get access to the data. And also the civil and political rights, um, freedom of expression, mm. um, it's also very important because otherwise it's really difficult to bring up issues um, regardless of whatever issue um, we are focusing on, be it migrant workers' issues mm. or um, women's issues, mm-hmm. LGBT issues or um, the rights of disabled people, yeah. yeah. And also I think one important, I think one thing about this um, coalition report that I was part of was also that it, it included um, climate change. Mm. Coalitions don't always um, include all issues. Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, like, I think that's something that could be improved upon because mm. for example, in the second um, cycle, the issues of disabled people weren't really talked about, even though mm. um, we just, during the first cycle, Singapore agreed to sign the CRPD mm. uh, Disability Convention. And then now, um, we didn't really have that much about racial discrimination mm. in our reporting, even though Singapore just agreed to sign mm. the CRD. So I think that's something that could be improved upon. But actually, based on what you said, there were actually two things um, that I thought of. One is, you know, completely agreeing with you that um, these mechanisms are very important, particularly for those concerns or issues or groups that have a harder time being heard here. For instance, those where mainstream media is much less willing to cover. Like, when will a statement from a death penalty abolition group, for instance, be carried in the mainstream media with the same prominence as let's say a statement by you know w- women's rights groups, you know it's now it's not taboo to talk about women's rights. We even have this promised white paper. I mean, as to whether it will actually uh, reflect a women's rights perspective? Question mark. But but it's obviously there are different levels of access to me- um, media attention for different kinds of concerns. Um, but also what you said about how the NGO work and solidarity is really important. Um, that really resonates with me. Um, and I agree with you that the civil society has not always done a good enough job of covering every base that absolutely needs to be covered. And that's also a reason why I think it would be really valuable for us to have a national human rights institution, which is something that a lot of other countries have, which is basically um, you could have a body that is supported or funded by the state, but that is allowed to operate independently and which has explicitly a mandate to look at Um, the range of human rights issues that apply in the country that would have funding to do so, um, that would have an authoritative status. Perhaps you could have it also, you know, to get around the issue of of access to information, it could even have um, particular powers to request information. Um, And if we had that, I mean, I'm not saying by any means that civil society doesn't need to keep working to, to be more... Um, comprehensive, absolutely it should Um, but that would also be a really good mechanism to help um, bolster that and make sure that those issues were getting the kind of airtime that they need in Singapore 
Yeah. Uh, and just to make a point, this is not like uh, a human rights commission is not something that's extremely foreign because no. Philippines has one, mm-hmm. Indonesia has one, I think Thailand has one, mm-hmm. and Cambodia has one, but it's not recognized by the government, but it still exists. Um, and, you know, in some ways it's even more powerful for not being recognized by that government. So it's not something that is so foreign to Singapore. Mm-hmm. We definitely, I mean, Singaporeans are very we're very good at um, organizing and building bureaucracies you know so why can't we have one too yeah yeah and um, in two reports for this UPR cycle from civil society have called for national human rights institutions so from the coalition that I was a part of yeah 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 but I mean also we cannot say that it's foreign because if it's foreign why did we sign all these treaties you could argue that UPR we don't we didn't have a choice right we're part of the UN we want to engage in all sorts of other technical or economic cooperation via the UN so therefore we we are part of the UPR as well but we had a choice as to whether to ratify conventions on rights to persons with disabilities or elimination of discrimination against women or racial discrimination, rights of the child, and so forth. So since we've signed up, then aren't we already committed and agreed to meet the standards promulgated in these instruments? So we should be investing resources in doing it. We can't say it's foreign. If, if we really thought it was so foreign, we could have just rejected mm. the whole the whole shebang, but we haven't. I suppose the government's position is that, oh, the PAP government itself can own self, check own self, and make sure that they are living up to these treaties and they will be the judge whether you know, these treaties are being adhered to mm. rather than someone a lot more impartial, third-party, mm. independent. Uh, yeah, mm. <laughs> which is, again, you know, part of the pattern of how politics is done in Singapore, yeah, unfortunately. I, I agree. And that's something that is also um, comes up when you have v- various civil society groups which are focused on different issues, all reporting at the same time because you can see a lot of commonalities in, in the ways that the issues can be addressed. Mm. Like two civil society, um, two reports both asked for national human rights institutions in order to monitor and address the human rights violations that are taking place mm-hmm. um, in general and also against their constituency in particular. And also th- there's uh, on this issue of own self, check oneself. Um, yeah, I mean, it applies for prisons and it also pl- applies for psychiatric um, settings. Mm. And there are many commonalities amongst yeah. the issues. Um, like, yeah, and like, even like detention, um, administrative detention, it, you know, there's the, the Internal Security Act, mm. the Criminal Law Temporary Provisions Act, um, the Mental Health Care and Treatment Act, um, Destitute Persons Act, um, and also um, detention of um, young women for mm. the places of safety, mm. which are all forms of detention of arbitrary detention. Hmm. Um, and another thing about um, how this um, the coalition worked is that um, although not all issues may have been included in the coalition report, um, it was also because of the way that um, you shouldn't, like, it's, it's not that if it's not included in the coalition report um, by the 11 NG, hmm. NGOs, it's not an important issue or hmm. that we don't support it. It's just that the way that the... UPR works at the moment is that they will consolidate all the reports so we have been encouraged not to repeat mm. and so for example the in, uh, the International Commission of of Jurists was 
going to submit its own report on freedom of expression, mandatory death penalty, and judicial caning. And so it was. We didn't put it in our report, but it's also an important report that you should go and read if you have time. It's on the internet, um, and also Function Eight submitted mm-hmm. its own report as well. And so um, we thought we would give more space to some of the other groups to talk mm-hmm. about the issues, but. Um, it's also an important report. Um, I may be wrong, but didn't Sione also, in addition to joining this 11 NGO coalition, also submit a report together with Transgender SG? Yes, there was an LGBTQI um, coalition report. Mm. And then also Function 8 also um, submitted a report along with the FIDH. Mm. FIDH? I believe it's an international NGO. Um, So you're, you're encouraged not to repeat... It's not a question of everyone should report what they think is most important and then the fact that something comes up a lot more often means it's more, a lot more urgent. But all of you are encouraged to work together to present different pieces of a broader picture. Yeah, I mean, I think it's partly a strategic question, right? You want, you want the delegates from other states to pick up on the concerns and the information that you've raised. Mm. Uh, the more you inundate them with large volume of repetitive information, the harder it will be for them to do that. Mm, right, yeah. I see. And also, if you have, let's say, a um, large coalition that has um, the backing of many diverse groups, that in itself lends moral force. You don't need to repeat the recommendation for it to be uh, clear that this is something that is broadly supported. And I suppose do you get the opportunity at some point to say that, you know, as representing this group, you also endorse the report coming in from that group and that group and that group or something like that? You, you could if you wanted, certainly. Okay, mm. okay. What, so this, this then, as someone who's very interested in, in structures, right, mm. um, th- there's a very interesting sort of constructivist argument here uh, for how this whole process, as you say, helps create and construct civil society within a country Mm. by um, so first of all you have the encouragement of um, coalitions collaborations working together not duplicating efforts you have increased visibility of issues and assistance to more marginalized groups to raise their issues uh, encouragement of people who want to know more about these issues um, to have a centralized place they can go to, right? And then on top of that, you've got all this coaching, training, um, peer-supported coaching and training uh, when it comes to the UPR about how to write these things and how to think about these issues and express yourself. But then you go to the international level and there are people in Geneva helping you, teaching you. Um, so this whole process seems to be way more than just here's a report on the state of human rights in the country, it's actually a, a, a process which, from what I'm hearing, helps create, empower, embolden civil society to train them up within countries. And I don't, I mean, I don't suppose you know about whether it's working in other countries, but it sounds like it's working well in Singapore. Um, I guess if we were to stray from the UPR for a moment, this yeah. is definitely my own experience of being involved with CEDAW when I was still working at AWARE. Um, I definitely felt that to be in that process where um, this there, there was no question that the 
women's human rights agenda was the main thing on the table that everyone had signed up to and the, the discussion was supposed to be about the best way to achieve that. I did definitely find that very... Um, I, I, it's not a word I like to use, but quite like empowering and quite like kind of constitutive almost of like a new reality as mm. opposed to here where you're often for many things kind of fighting and trying to elbow other things out of the way just to get for a moment the concern taken seriously. Um, so what you described kind of resonated with my experience there. And I guess the thing with UPR is that it's not so specific to one area. So the amount of time and attention that can be given is not as great. But um, definitely the there would be a similar um, logic at work where in the process, the human rights are front and centre. There's no question when you take part in the process that that is the thing that everybody is supposed to be there to realise. And um, I do think that that is useful for people to go through to kind of be in that headspace and think about things in that way. Um, the idea that coalitions are taken more seriously at the UPR is an, uh, also an incentive for civil society to come together and, and in that way build solidarity. So the structure is part of what helps as well. So besides the the report that um, by the 11 civil society organisations, um, there was also a report um, from the International Commission on Jurists mm. and also from Function 8 as well as a joint report from Function 8 with the, along with the International Federation for Human Rights which is, um, goes by the acronym, the French acronym FIDH as well as a, a coalition report um, by LGBTQI groups. So, for example, in our report, um, we looked at issues of uh, freedom of expression and freedom of information under our civil and political rights um, section. And then we put um, the issues of marginalized groups under social and cultural rights, but not every issue, every point or recommendation under our section on social and cultural rights is actually... Um, strictly a social and cultural mm. rights issue. Some of them are actually civil and political rights issues, um, like um, legal capacity and arbitrary detention um, mm. of people with disabilities. Yeah. Uh, you said earlier that the report doesn't have much on racial discrimination, but I think, but it, it seems to me there's a whole chunk here. Can you can you elaborate what you what you what you mean? Okay, so the report does talk about discrimination against Muslim women, which is really important as well. But I think there's a lot more that could be said in the light of Singapore having agreed in the last session to sign and ratify the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination. Yeah, I mean, I think this also reflects a broader gap in civil society and groups and structures in Singapore, right? It's certainly, it's certainly not because there isn't racial discrimination or, you know, I'm sure we could write reams of reports of concerns on that alone. But, um, for instance, where, where is there a group, you know, a strong group whose mission is squarely on racial discrimination? It's one of the most taboo areas for discussion in Singapore. It's one that's most likely to attract the attention of authorities under various forms of legislation like the Sedition Act. Um, you know, for every uh, piece of legislation that concerns freedom of expression, very often there will be a particular carve-out for discussing questions of 
race and religion. So I think this this uh, absence or, or or gap may reflect the lack of capacity that we have in civil society, which in turn reflects certain structural challenges to discussing this in Singapore. Okay, that's a very interesting point. So this this report then. It, it also, it's still limited in some ways by the severe restrictions that we have in Singapore on discussing certain issues, and in particular, uh, you know, the famous OB markers of race and religion. Um, in, 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 in that, because we can't discuss those issues, we therefore don't have capacity in civil society to comment or write sufficiently about those issues, and therefore it doesn't end up in the report. Right, I see. That's that's a that's a very interesting observation. So this report isn't it's sufficient insufficiently comprehensive in that the the worst issues can't make it in, or the most difficult issues. Not to say the the worst that that has different connotation, but the most the issues with the that are the most difficult to discuss also can't make it in. So this report kind of exists in the space in a sort of uh, it's these are issues which are. Not circumscribed enough. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. Circumscribed I wouldn't. To I wouldn't say can't because obviously, yeah. uh, with greater efforts, it it may be possible to to do this. For instance, like death penalty abolition, right? It gets very, very, very little, um, official recognition or 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 mercy or quarter. Uh, but it is there. Uh, thanks to somewhat heroic efforts by uh, abolition campaigners, but obviously the environment that we operate in is going to affect what sort of groups have a ongoing uh, sustained presence who are able to um, kind of organise and make their voices heard in these ways. And so um, maybe not can't, but certainly the barriers don't mean absolutely cannot, but it is going to affect what comes out for sure. And hopefully in the next cycle, we will have groups working on racial discrimination in the joint report because in the last report, we didn't talk about people with disabilities, um, but this time we had some representation. So it was also a lack of capacity issue, mm. but we managed it this time. So hopefully next time around, we will have more about racial discrimination as well. Yeah, and I guess that's that's a good point to kind of close on that. Uh, this report is only as good as Singaporeans can make it that we need to stand up and speak out and do the research um, otherwise, it's you know it's not going to be them. We can't just assume anyone else is going to do it for us. Yes. So for our audience listening, uh, where can they find a copy of this report and the other reports submitted? Is there a repository anywhere, or is it like scattered across different places? Well, the report by the eleven CSOs is up on the Aware website, um, right. and then the International Commission on Juries report is on their website as well. Okay, we'll put links in the show notes. Yeah, and also the one by Function Eight in conjunction with FIDH is on the FIDH website, I believe. But otherwise, you can go to the UN has a list, mm-hmm. and you can go to like the cycle number, and then yeah. Under that, they will have all the documents. Or at least the ones where the consent has been given to make it public. Yes. Okay. Okay, and, and if anyone uh, listening or any of you out there uh, are interested in this, well, please do read the reports uh, and please do share them. Um, please do, you know, retweet and share on your Facebook. Um, lots of awareness about these issues is really important. Uh, and if you'd like to get involved, just uh, get in touch, write in to me at New Narrative, and I can help you put in touch with um, with all these uh, civil society groups. 
So I guess uh, that brings us to a close. This has been a, a fascinating, fascinating session. I've learned a lot. It's re really interesting. So uh, thank you, Emmy, for joining us. Thank you, Julia. Yeah, thank you. And as always, thank you, to, uh, our listeners, our audience, for uh, spending your time with us. Uh, thank you for joining us. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do go to newnarrative.com for more uh, stories on Southeast Asia. Uh, check our sister podcast, Southeast Asia Dispatches. Uh, for more news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. Um, and if you'd like to join New Narrative as a member, please do at newnarrative.com slash join or donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Thank you very much and Where see you next time. Where you think that you're gonna go? This is utopia. Please stay where you are. We've come way too far. Where you think that you're gonna go? This is utopia.